exploration of biblical masculinity and femininity. It's kind of a goat trail I got onto from Colossians. So we're still in our study of Colossians. We're just not looking at Colossians right now, looking at some other things. But um, one of the things that, uh, that, that maybe is garnished from, from the last couple of sermons about this is that um, defining biblical masculinity and femininity is not as easy as it sounds like it ought to be. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not as easy to define as we might think. And it's particularly difficult in light of the fact that the culture around us is constantly trying to redefine what masculinity and femininity are. And so we have all the sort of confusing messages that come in. And we've, we've talked about the fact that the culture um, is now trending towards looking at gender as an entirely social construct, that it's just something we've, we've cut from whole cloth. We, we, we make it up and we perpetuate um, these gender stereotypes and there's no uh, significant real differences between us. And there's this demand for sameness that we've talked about, not just equality of uh, men and women, but the sort of sameness of experience and sameness of outcome and we want this despite our obvious biological differences. We have differences in our brain physiology. Um, we are relationally different. Often we are functionally different. We sometimes have different priorities and different aptitudes. And historically, in Christian societies, Christian cultures, those differences have all been viewed as a positive. They're, they're important in that they express the image of God in unique ways. That idea is, uh, has lost ground in our culture. And um, some of the effects of that are not, not too bad. Women today are encouraged to do whatever they want to do. They're encouraged to do everything that men have traditionally done even the really dumb things that men have traditionally done. I don't mind this to some extent. I have three daughters, and I like the idea that opportunities are open to them, that doors are open to them. All of that we can view as kind of a good thing. But along with it comes an enormous pressure on women uh, for one thing, to be to have successful careers and beautiful, perfect families in equal measure. And we all know how difficult it is to maintain both of those priorities at the same time. Women, of course, uh, we talked about this, that women want to feel, they want to be found beautiful. And we have industries in this country that support this feeling to the tune of billions of dollars that women spend on hair and makeup products and clothing, all to be attractive to men, but then at the same time, they're being told, you shouldn't care what men think. So we're doing an awful lot to be attractive to men when we don't care about what they think. The standards uh, of beauty, the standards uh, for family, for personal and professional success um, are often extremely demanding and unrealistic for women, but at least, at least, it is expansive. 
In other words, the opportunities for women, the place for women, the roles that women can take up in the society are growing rather than shrinking. This morning I want to talk about masculinity, and I think masculinity has the opposite problem. I think our notions about masculinity and what's, what's okay for men to do and be is actually a shrinking territory. The traditional values that we have associated with men, values like toughness and independence and stoicism and heterosexuality and hard work and protectiveness, all of these values to some extent in our culture today are regarded as toxic. And so we don't feel safe with men acting like men. And particularly in terms of that aggression that men tend to have, that strength, that power that they bring to bear, we want to keep that safely contained. And so men can be strong, men can be aggressive on the sports field, they can be aggressive uh, uh, in the outdoors, they can be aggressive playing games. In other words, we've sort of limited manhood play. And is it any wonder then that we have so many men who never seem to grow up and men who grow up and then can't seem to find their place in the new world? We've talked a lot in this series about deceptive philosophies because that's one of the things that Paul introduces us to in Colossians. But one of the world's deceptive philosophies right now is that virtually all distinctions made between men and women are a function of patriarchal oppression. So any discussion of the intrinsic uh, and unique gender values, roles, or capabilities that we might have is viewed with a great deal of suspicion in the culture, including this discussion that we're having right now. We start talking about biblical masculinity and femininity, there is a, a large contingency of folks who hear those words, even, uh, even our discussion of gender, hear those words as code. This is all code for keeping men in roles of power and putting women in roles of subjection. That's not my intent. But I am very familiar with the argument. I have three sisters. Uh, my family sort of echoes my birth family. Three, three, three daughters and one son. I, you know, I grew up in a family where there were three daughters and one son. My two older sisters are decidedly more traditional in their thinking about women than, than I am, which I think is kind of my younger sister is pretty sure, pretty sure that um, I am a terrible person, that, that my view of women is uh, restrictive and because I have this complementary uh, understanding of, of uh, the relationship between male and female. This is my contention, basically that both male and female are created in the image of God. And in most ways, we are fundamentally the same 
in how we express the image of God as we, as we make our way through this life. In a few ways, we are fundamentally different. And it is in those unique ways, those few unique differences between the genders that the unique qualities of the masculine and feminine self can be found. So last week, I suggested to you that the feminine uniquely expresses the image of God in divine help, life, beauty, and vulnerability. Help in that the woman is God's perfect answer to a, a creation that before that moment is incomplete. She is, in essence, a sort of divine rescue for the creation. Life in that she bears within herself this miraculous capacity to bear and nurture children. In herself, it is, it is, uh, there is a, a symbolism of life. And in fact, one of the first promises that we have is that through her, the Christ will come. Beauty, in that her outward beauty fires masculine desire, but we understand from what we've been taught in the, in the scriptures that inner beauty, the inner beauty that she cultivates, is of far greater consequence. And vulnerability in that she is created to be valued and protected. And when she chooses to submit herself, to a worthy man or a man she believes can be worthy, there is a profound influence that she has. Ladies, you have no idea how much impact you have on us when you invite us to lead you. Well, that's what I have suggested to you is uh, a biblical picture of femininity. What is sacred masculinity? Well, I suggested again last week that uh, sacred masculinity is a, a primary moral responsibility. Adam is created. He's placed in Eden. He is tasked with caring for the world, and he is given a moral imperative. It's just the one moral imperative. It's just don't eat from this tree. But in the context of Eden, in the simplicity and the innocence of that moment, all that's really required for a moral imperative is that we understand that God has a will and that God has truth. Accepting this moral imperative is accepting that God's will and truth are real. Before the creation of woman, Man has this moral imperative. He has this responsibility. He will assume the primary burden for it, that mantle of responsibility. He cannot do it alone. God makes that very clear, and he goes to great pains to make it to Adam very clear that he can't do it alone. But there is still this kernel, this onus of responsibility that rests on his shoulders. Well, what happens? Well, you know the story. They have one command, and what do they do? They break that one command, just like you and I would do. 
reach up and take the fruit. Eve listens to the serpent, her tempter. Adam listens to Eve. Now here's what's interesting, because we've been studying this from Paul. Paul says in Romans 5 that death came into the world through one man, who's Adam, and life comes into the world through another man, who is Christ. He also says in 1 Timothy 2 that Eve was deceived and Adam was not. So how is it that death has come into the world through Adam if Adam wasn't deceived? Well, where was he? Here's what it says in Genesis 3.6. And the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I want, let's, just put, let's just put all these pieces together. They're both there. The serpent is talking. Eve is listening. Adam is there the whole time. And what does Paul tell us about what's happening for Adam? He says, Adam was not deceived. He was present. He was not deceived. And what did he have to say about the situation? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Somehow the greater sin in that moment is Adam's silence. The sin that brings death into the world is Adam's lack of responsibility for the situation. You see, we have all been deceived by evil, and we all bear responsibility for the times that we have been deceived by evil. But Adam was not deceived, and his sin is silence. He does not take on the mantle of responsibility that God has given him. And through this man is, comes sin into the world because his leadership is sinful. Paul says if we follow Adam... We follow him to our death, and if we follow Christ, we follow him into life. The primary moral responsibility that I have been suggesting to you is the call to men to assume moral authority and responsibility for their household. Postmodern culture, though, teaches us that women are not supposed to need men at all. They're certainly not supposed to need them for any kind of moral authority. And it's true enough. I think most of us would, would, would testify. Women are often more moral than men. <laughs> Amen. Women are often more spiritually minded than men. So the question that we're discussing this morning is not a question of the capacity of women to be moral. It's a question of what is lost when men retreat 
from their primary moral responsibility. Let's just consider this morning um, the role of, of fathers. We're talking about moral responsibility for one's household. According to the National Center for Fathering, we have in this country right now an epidemic of fatherlessness. One-third, one-third of the children in this country are being raised in a household where dad is not even physically present. And we're not even counting the place, the, the, the households where dad's present but is inactive or ineffective. We're just talking about where he's just physically gone. And here's what we know about that. 90% of the runaways in America come from households where there's no father present. 71% of the children who are abusing substances come from a household where dad's not there. 70% of the kids in juvenile correction today come from homes without a father. 70% of teen pregnancies occur for girls who have no father in the home. Kids who grow up without a dad present twice as likely to commit suicide, nine times as likely to drop out of school, and 20 times as likely to be incarcerated. That's, that's the impact. We can bring that a little closer to home. Talk about what happens in our churches. Mother's Day. Mother's Day is the third most attended church service right after uh, Christmas and Easter. Father's Day, the least attended church service of the year. Why is that? Well, because mom says, you know what I would love is for all of my kids to go to worship with me. Dad says, you know what I'd like is for my kids to skip church and we'll go do something else. Now, maybe that's an incrimination against the church. Maybe, maybe we need to rethink how we appeal to men as, as churches. But here, th this is hard. This is hard. But here's, here's the reality we have to deal with. In, in households where mom brings the kids to church and dad doesn't come, statistically speaking, not necessarily you, but statistically speaking, two-thirds of her kids will not be a part of the church in the future. In households where dad comes and mom doesn't, statistically speaking, two-thirds of those kids will be in church. This is the influence that masculinity has on the household when man assumes primary moral responsibility. You see, part of what we have, part of, part of what makes this, this sacred, holy manhood, this masculinity, is we have a commissioned strength. We are supposed to take what we have been given in the creation and we are supposed to use it for a task. Now, it's no mystery. It's not a secret that men, far more than women, tend to define themselves by what we do. Women tend to define themselves a little more relationally. 
who they're connected to. But men tend to define themselves by what they do, by what tasks they perform. Adam is placed in Eden. He is commissioned with its care. What's the significance of that? Adam's job is to tend the creation in light of the fact that God has will and God has truth. And God's very clear, again, he cannot do this alone. But it is his responsibility first. What happens when men assume the task of shaping the world around them after the image of God? Difficult question to answer because we don't often see it. What happens when they don't? That's a little easier to imagine. Genesis 3 and 16, God is delivering this curse in response to the fall. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I want to focus on that last phrase. Desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Admittedly, some Christians throughout history have sort of read this as a prescription. Like, th- we need to make sure that this is how it all goes down. And so, uh, because God said this means that, that husbands need to rule over their wives. I think that's kind of hilarious in a way. We, we don't uh, work extra hard to make sure that childbearing is painful. Uh, we don't resent men who don't have to plow and till the ground and work by the sweat of their brow to produce food for their families. But, but we have historically come to the conclusion that we need to rule over the women in our lives. This is not a prescription for a healthy world. This is the result of sin. This is a condemnation. And there's a lot of different ways that we could read it, but one of the ways that we can read it, the way I I think we need to read it this morning, is that women will desire the men in their lives to be what they were created to be. And when they aren't, it will impact creation in a negative way that women cannot mend. You see, it's not simply a matter of a man having been created, given a task which he knows he cannot perform alone. The pendulum has sort of swung to the other side in our culture right now, and the idea is that women, if women ran the show, they could do it much better without us. The reality of our mission, the reality of, of, of what we're created for is that we cannot do this without each other. We go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1.28. Adam and Eve are given this commission. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We fast forward a couple of millennia, and Jesus says to his followers, Therefore, go and make disciples 
of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You notice some similarity between these two things? The first commission is to rule over creation in the will and truth of God. And the second commission is to reshape the creation after the will and truth of God. God is nothing if not very, very consistent. This is the mission that we must collectively fulfill. And when we do, when we do, men are dwelling makers. They create space. You see, assuming moral responsibility for our households, for our churches, is not a matter of control. It's a matter of servanthood. It's a matter of responsibility. When a man lives to serve and shape creation after God's heart, he creates a blessed dwelling space for all those in his care. He expands their space rather than shrinking it. Where this hasn't happened, where men have mistreated and oppressed women, where we've created rules we didn't need to have, where uh, we, have, we have used our strength to be abusive and controlling, this is not a manifestation of God's will. This is a manifestation of a brokenness in the world, a fallenness in the world that subverts everything about God's will for the relationship between male and female. I, I opened this morning talking about the deceptive philosophies that exist in our culture today, and there's a myriad of them to choose from. We've also been talking about our deceptive philosophies, those that show up in our fellowships and in the church. One of those is that in order to validate the leadership of men, we are compelled to invalidate the leadership of women. Our churches have often created elaborate policies about what women can and can't do, taken from a few really very poorly interpreted passages, often ignoring the unique context of those passages, often ignoring all the, the countless examples of the influential and powerful women in the early church. And really, over the years, I've come to this conclusion that as, as men have shrunk away from their primary moral responsibility as men, we have asked women to become less so that we as men will still look like we're doing more. This is a sin. In our homes and in our churches, we do want men to assume primary moral responsibility. But not to limit women 
We want them to do it so they can apply their strength, their God-given strength and their influence to reshaping creation after God's heart. Ultimately, it is not our individual pursuits that matter. It is not a zero-sum game. It's not like the if the men win, the women lose, or vice versa. See, the perfect expression of our humanity is the realization of God's intent. This is why we're here. We're here ongoing, our ongoing mission in this world. We're still here because Christ has called us to go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded us. We're here to remake the world after God's heart. It is a mission that we men could not possibly accomplish alone, but women can't either. We need each other. We are in this together. And those lessons that we have been learning about the superiority of Jesus from Colossians, the superiority of Jesus is all about remaking our world